From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. 24 inspectors general have a request from House Oversight Government Operations Subcommittee Chairman Jerry Connolly to investigate agency reopening plans. A letter from Connolly to each of the IGs lists possible elements of assessments to review each agency's plan. NextGov reports Connolly's letter to acting De uh, Defense Department IG Sean O'Donnell also includes a request to investigate the death of a food service worker at Quantico who died of coronavirus. Defense contractors may have an extra year to get rid of forbidden Chinese components in their networks. The 2019 National Defense Authorization Act bans every agency from doing business with companies that use parts from Huawei, ZTE, and other Chinese companies. FedScoop reports the Pentagon says a one-year delay may be coming from the Federal Acquisition Council. The Department of Housing and Urban Development is moving to the next phase of the Centers of Excellence program. Contracts for cloud adoption and customer experience will be the first phase two contracts the agencies awarded. NextGov reports Systems Engineering Solutions Corporation won the cloud contract. Booz Allen Hamilton won the customer experience contract. The new coronavirus relief bill the House passed would include a billion dollars for IT modernization in government. Congressman Jerry Conley says the government needs to invest a lot more than the $25 million that's in the Technology Modernization Fund now. Tony Scott is managing partner at Ridge Lane Limited Partners and former Chief Information Officer of the United States. Tony, thanks for coming on the program. When you first envisioned, you and your colleagues at OMB, envisioned the Technology Modernization Fund, the, the vision for it was a lot bigger than the way it looks today, wasn't it? Well, it was, and you know, it was a recognition that there had been decades of technology put into the federal government, much of which hadn't been upgraded since its original uh, installation. And you know, simple math on replacing um, what had already been invested on some sort of regular basis, uh, that that math led us to the conclusion that significantly more money was going to be required if we were going to uh, make a serious effort on that. One of the concerns that I've heard expressed in the vendor community about the possibility of a billion dollars for IT modernization is how quickly agencies could actually get the money out the door and make the modernization happen. There are so many programs, there are so many issues that prioritizing them would seem to be the biggest challenge. Is that fair read, do you think, Tony? Well, I think it is, and you know, at the end of the administration, we did the um, uh, report on uh, government-wide IT and asked agencies to prioritize uh, things that were both cyber risks, but also uh, functional risks that were getting in the way of um, the agency doing its mission or its business, and. Um, and that's continued. Um, I think Suzette and team have done a great job of, you know, getting agencies to prioritize where investments need to be made. And I think, you know, creating visibility of that need is the first step to action.
So the creation of the visibility strikes me. Coronavirus is example one. And when Suzette Kent, your successor, was on the program the last time, she referred to this as an opportunity. A lot of other IT officials in government are referring to this as an opportunity to demonstrate to Congress in particular, this is what we did with the money you gave us. And if you want more of this, we could use more money. Is that basically the pitch that you see, Tony, or is it more nuanced or more complex potentially than that? Well, I think it goes beyond COVID. Um, you know, the, uh, the issues that uh, COVID exposed run deep. And uh, while it ex this crisis exposed some of those issues, um, you know, the next crisis, whatever it happens to be, will expose other issues. And so I think we need to take a pretty comprehensive look at the portfolio, how well we're serving citizens, and continue to prioritize uh, based on a, you know, sort of government-wide look at um, where issues are and, and how government can be more effective in a post-crisis world, post-COVID world. Uh, I think, if anything, this has accelerated uh, visibility uh, of the need for mass digitization of what uh, government does and the services it provides. Um, I'm not sure that there's anybody who's jumping up and down with joy and saying, boy, this is really fantastic how it's all working today, despite, you know, some really great efforts um, in a very short period of time. Uh, I think everybody's got a long list of things that um, they could say, we could do this a lot better with uh, some additional money. I want to go back to the idea of the TMF fund. Um, we're about four years on from when uh, it originally became a thing. Is it time maybe to tweak it, or does the model still look as good to you, Tony, as it did when you were sitting in the CIO chair? Well, I liked the model um, a lot, but, you know, different times call for different uh, responses. And, you know, if I was sitting in the chair today, I'd probably recommend relaxing some of the rules on payback. Um, the reason for payback initially were two. One was uh, to make sure there was uh, agency commitment to the projects that were being um, proposed. Um, and secondly, to make sure that there was good financial discipline and not just money, uh, you know, going to waste. Um, so I think some of those muscles have been well exercised in the last four years. And I think uh, people are, you know, beginning to realize the value of those. But at this point, the need is so great. Um, uh, even with the TMF money that's been out there, it's a small drop in the bucket in terms of what's needed. Um, and so I would relax the rules probably on payback a little bit, uh, but keep the other disciplines around incremental funding, uh, using commercial uh, software and some of those things uh, where I think there's been great success and I think the, the model has worked pretty well. About 30 seconds left, Tony. I note that you say relaxing the rules on payback and not suspending them or eliminating them. What does relaxing them look like? Just longer time for agencies to pay the money back or, or what does that mean? Well, I, I, you could do a couple of things. One is extend the time uh, second thing is you could allow different sources for payback. Um, I think some of the agencies have struggled with, um, you know, finding the money within a smaller um, 
set of sources. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of other sources of funding that agencies have access to that could be used to uh, pay back over time. So I'd get creative with that uh, piece of it um, and try to keep the discipline which encourages agency commitment. Tony Scott, thanks as always. Great to talk to you. Hey, great to talk to you as well. Up next, planning for a pandemic and a hurricane at the same time. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the technology and tools agencies need to do both. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Hurricane season is underway and agencies now need to line up their hurricane plans with their pandemic plans. Making sure agencies have the right technology in place is part of the Federal Emergency Management Agency's guidance for response and recovery. Mark McNulty is Vice President General Manager of U.S. Federal, Mar Federal Government Markets at Motorola Solutions. Mark, thanks very much for coming on the program. I think folks like me that are maybe a little too Washington-centric think of FEMA as the only agency that should be thinking about this, but every agency should ha have some kind of contingency plan in place for their operations that are in other parts of the country, right? Absolutely, and thank you for having me on this morning, uh, Francis. As a, as a provider of mission critical communications, we know that uh, emergency management uh, at all levels of government um, really focus on three primary areas. Uh, the resilience or the planning piece, which is kind of the, the nature of your question, and then obviously the response and the recovery that follows. And uh, FEMA kind of outlines uh, as they think about technology and planning, um, you know, they call it the PACE plan, which is primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency uh, in those, in, the, in kind of in that, uh, you know, descending order. And uh, one of the things that you know we're doing to help our customers prepare is we're providing a checklist of items of things that they can do to get themselves ready for hurricane season. Everything from taking inventory of radios and other communications devices that they have for surge use because new users of that technology will come in to help uh, in response and recovery, um, all the way through to performing preventive maintenance uh, on generators that keep their radio networks working, keep their 911 call centers operational, um, all the way to you know reviewing their plans for how do they pre-position assets perhaps outside of the impact zone um, and that's everything from equipment to people uh, and skilled labor. What are the most important elements of resilience? It strikes me that if you have that one in place the other two become much easier Mark. Well certainly um, you know one thing that we know about resilience and readiness is that it saves lives. Uh, that's true in any emergency and certainly uh, true in the case of hurricane response. You know, preparation allows us to deploy the right resources more quickly, again, allowing us to save lives. Preparation and, and readiness also shortens the recovery time, which uh, again, saving time on the back end for people and their lives to get back to normal. And then really, preparation is a sound investment. It saves money. There is, uh, it's estimated that $1 uh, spent in preparing uh, for hurricanes and other natural disasters saves as much as $6 on the back end. What's your sense of how this hurricane season will be different because of coronavirus, because of the, what emergency plans organizations are already in the middle of and what they will have to do in the recovery and response uh, elements, uh, pieces uh, of this one? Uh, I, I think the word is it complicates it. 
it, it complicates preparations, both in the things that uh, as, as resources are being drawn to help with the response and recovery to the global pandemic, uh, and which means they have less time to focus on preparing for hurricane season. It also is going to, uh, everything in a post-COVID world seems to take a little longer, whether it's going to the grocery store or you know, responding to, uh, to, to emergency situations. And it's going, it's, it's going to mean that emergency managers and, and the governors of the states and, and areas impacted are going to have to make decisions sooner uh, because of the fact that things will take longer. We, um, it also introduces complexities into the response as we try to keep both the first responders and the citizens that they serve uh, safe and practice social distancing or the wearing of masks and other things to keep people uh, safe and healthy. And you refer to some of the folks I wanted to ask you about who will be the most important people for federal government organizations to interact with in this environment? Will it look the same as they work down the chain, state, local jurisdictions, and so on? Will that look the same as it did in a pre-corona environment, or will there be other things there to complicate those relationships too, do you think? Well, I, I think the framework of you know locally focused, the, the, the first responders uh, who know the area, who are the first ones on the ground, they're going to be the tip of the spear. Obviously state managed and then federally supported. I don't think that model changes um, as we go forward. Um, just because we're putting the most knowledgeable people uh, there and we're bringing in the state and the federal government to support those efforts. I think what will change, uh, and FEMA points this out in some of their guidance, is that more of the work that they and others have done in the past um, will now be done remotely. Uh, as an example, um, even in a COVID-19 world where someone was infected with the disease and we've had to relocate 911 call takers, um, you know, that, that need for telework across the government uh, is not just for office workers. We, we see job functions that we never thought would be done remotely, like 911 call takers, dispatchers, uh, now doing things from home. A perfect example is just across the river there in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, 911 and 311 call takers, many of them now are working and taking those calls for, uh, for help and service from home. We have about 30 seconds left, Mark. Is there some kind of technology that will make a huge difference that wasn't available before, or is this just a matter of using the current technologies that are available more efficiently, better, faster, or whatever? I'll put the technologies into two buckets. Uh, there's the tried and true. Um, so for mission-critical voice communications, land mobile radio uh, serves uh, our first responders very well. Then there's also the command center software packages that they are using, that 911 call taking, computer-aided dispatch software, video and video analytic systems. Those are the tried and true that um, have, have stood the test of time. I think the, the innovative and new that are coming, um, there's obviously an increased use of mobile broadband networks and to the extent that they withstand the force of the hurricane storms, they're providing mission critical data to our first responders and helping with that situational awareness. And then the cloud, as we mentioned earlier, with you know people being able to work remotely, cloud technology being able to leverage that for everything from 911, computer aid dispatch, situational awareness, location of where our assets are, um, and allowing people to perhaps move out of the impact zone and still work remotely and contribute to the response and recovery. That's those would be the two new technologies I see emerging. Mark, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to get your insight. 
Thanks for having me, Francis. Up next, top IT challenges, top challenges for the IT workforce. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's driving the future for federal information technology? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Only 3% of the federal IT workforce is under age 30, and recruiting new talent has been hard for agencies in recent years. The CIO Council's Future of the Federal IT Workforce update has new recommendations for improving the IT workforce. Nick Sinai is Senior Advisor at Insight Partners, former Deputy Chief Technology Officer of the United States. Nick, welcome. What did you think of this list of 10 recommendations from the CIO Council when you first looked it over? Yeah, Francis, I thought this was a great report. I know that the CIO Council spent uh, nine months interviewing and studying the problem, and uh, I think they really they really nailed it. There are 10 recommendations here, Nick, and I have a couple in particular I want to ask you about. Number five is making federal IT career paths more attractive to the workforce of the future. What does that look like in your view? Yeah, so I, I think there's a bunch of things here. So. Um, uh, IT workers, anyone really wants to work in a modern environment on a modern tech stack, have professional development, uh, wants to have a chance to make impact. There's a, a whole series of things that uh, uh, CIOs and, and uh, senior leaders can do to kind of improve the workplace and make it a place where uh, we attract the best and brightest. It's one of the interesting, I think, silver linings of the pandemic response is that one of the recommendations the CIO Council makes about this exact one probably would not have been well received three months ago, six months ago. Government should leverage regional office and telework options to meet top IT professionals where they live. I think a lot of non-IT leaders a short time ago would have said, well, we're probably not interested in that. Now they might be very interested in that, Nick. Yeah, I've, I've been talking to senior tech leaders in a, in a few agencies, and they've said that COVID has really woke senior leadership up in terms of how much they can they can uh, work from home and have a distributed workforce. And so we already have some work from home and some regional offices in terms of our, our tech federal workforce. But I think this has really uh, helped senior leaders reimagine the art of the possible. And so um, that's important because there's great tech talent across the country. Um, and, and if we are gonna have, have a, a preeminent federal IT workforce, and we're going to have to recruit from, from across the country. One piece of this recommendation is tied to another one of the findings that I think is interesting. E uh, expanding existing pilot programs to improve recruiting efforts is number eight on this list. It ties to the recommendation in number five, I think, uh, because in number five, the CIO Council suggests workforce rotational programs with industry. What I think the common thread is, tell me if you think I'm right, is once people get a taste of government service, you saw this as the CTO, once people get a taste of government service, they really like it, don't they, Nick? They absolutely do. They get attracted to the impact, the mission, the scale, the chance to do something really important. Um, and, and, and frankly, the, the challenge and the difficulty and the, the complexity uh, attracts great people as well. And so I'm a big fan of people flow, as I like to call it. So how can we think about great people coming in into government, but also how can we find opportunities for, for rotational programs and people to have externships and so forth. And so I think the more that we can have great people come in and out of government and have a tour of duty, uh, that's going to, to 
improve government uh, for all of us. When you were in government and advocated for that flow, were there times where you saw something, a policy or a procedure or a process that was in place that maybe didn't help that very much and you said, boy, maybe that's something we could look at changing or getting rid of? Yeah, I think this report uh, uh, nails it in, in this regard, Francis, is, is that the, the, uh, the GS system doesn't work very well from a, from a pay perspective. Uh, the whole recruiting perspective, uh, recruiting and hiring processes don't work very well. Uh, frankly, and so um, you know, I was fortunate, and I, I helped with the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, and at the tail end with the U.S. Digital Service, and and those processes were were largely outside the traditional USA Jobs process, um, and so I think we we have to reimagine those. And then a credit to the CIOs of the federal government who wrote this report, who were advocating for uh, a new path forward, which would include. Uh, a, a new pay system. Um, it would include include uh, new kind of flexibility to to recruit and hire uh, specialized talent. So I think kudos to them for for leaning forward. About thirty seconds left, Nick. What would you watch moving forward to see if this becomes another Washington report that sits on a shelf, or whether it becomes uh, somebody's action list and things start to happen? Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot a lot going to happen here. And of course, uh, given that it's an election year, uh, we're not going to see big legislation or, or big uh, executive action. Uh, but the hard work uh, on a bipartisan basis can actually get done in terms of planning some of these reforms. And I'm, I'm seeing some really uh, promising progress on the upskilling and baselining and reskilling. If you look at the Air Force Digital University, look at what Social Security is doing with the strategic workforce. And so I'm going to look to see, you know, how we continue to uh, build the workforce of the future, uh, even before we get some of these big structural changes. Nick Sinai, thanks very much as always. I appreciate it. Thanks, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.